everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to Ideology, here with Drew Stedman and Mick Murray, and we are going to build this week on what we started last week. And some of you might see this as a departure from where we've been as this podcast has unfolded, looking at the belief systems that are shaping you know, the contours of modern society, according to our tagline. And we're pausing here to talk about, in a bit more depth, how to be biblically formed. And last week, we looked at the study of Scripture and really beefing up our personal study of the Scriptures as a way to combat and to stay strong amid a trend in our culture, a current in our culture that's moving away from a biblical foundation. And we want to model that for you guys here over the next couple of weeks. Today, Drew is going to unpack the book of Romans and really apply a lot of what we talked about last week in his own personal study of Romans, hopefully to not just unveil the richness of that book to you today, but also to give you some hands-on tools or to demonstrate what that could look like in your own personal study of the scriptures. And then next week, I'm going to take a look at Job and do the same thing and look at the context, the messages, how to go about approaching the study of that of that book, which can be quite tricky. Hopefully, you find this uh, fruitful and helpful for you as you continue to deepen your knowledge of the scriptures, and it results in worship and love for God and helps us remain rooted amidst so many mixed messages coming our way as we navigate the complexities of our culture. So with that, Drew, why don't you take us into an overview of the book of Romans? What an incredible book, right? This book is probably been the most influential part of the New Testament for the last 500 years, ever since Luther came along. Romans was at the center of the Protestant Reformation and the idea of justification by faith. My experience with Romans has been almost everybody who has any history in the church, regardless even of where their current walk with God is at, probably has some understanding of the book of Romans. And there's a danger there. You know, Mick, next week you're going to take us into Job which very few Christians probably have a good overview of the book of Job and its messages. So it's really starting, it it is a very tricky book. And, you know, Romans, we have the opposite danger where we probably all think we know what Romans says. I, I find, though, the more I study Romans, the more I realize there's a lot more to it than is there at first glance. You know, I I am thankful on the one hand for tools, very thankful, evangelistic tools like the Romans Road, where you look at salvation in the book of Romans, and you kind of walk through a few key texts that culminate in the message of grace through faith. And that's that's awesome. And that's a great starting point. However, I do get concerned that we stop there too. It's our starting point and it's our stopping point where we think we understand, just like we've talked about with the gospel. We think we understand the gospel when we got a very basic understanding of it, um, where there's actually so much more to it, so much more depth and life to it. And the same thing can be true of studying this book. I want to build on what we talked about last week where we, we gave you some lens to look at. We, we said, what is the purpose of the book? What's the genre of the book? Who is writing the book? What are some of the problems that they're seeking to address? And then using that as an interpretive grid, really to ultimately answer the question, what is the main point of the book? So I'm going to take you into some of my own study and reflections on Romans. And, and I'll just say for myself, I've probably studied this one book more than any other in Scripture and it has been um, personally very influential for me. I think if I had to pick one passage in Scripture that 
has um, shaped me the most is Romans 8. And the different theologians have called it the summit of the mountain of theology. You know, it's just such a beautiful, rich, dense passage. So it's been a personal, personal one for me. Okay, so we're going to start off with who wrote it, and it's the Apostle Paul. He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. You know, there's some debate about did Paul actually write all of the letters that are attributed to him. I personally believe that he did, and I think there's some great reasons for that. But virtually nobody disputes that Paul wrote the book of Romans, and this is one that everybody more or less understands that this was one of the letters written by Paul. Romans was written most likely from Corinth and was written in the mid-50s A.D., so about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it was written from the city of Corinth. So Paul is in the midst of his missionary journeys, and we're still in the very, very early years of the church being established. And as a starting point, when you read the theological depth and nuance of Romans, it's amazing to me that this is only 20 years after um, Jesus ascended up into heaven. And you already have a picture of a very far-flung church in multiple parts of the Roman Empire and a very deep theological reflections. And, you know, I look at my own life, like this was my, you know, the equivalent of my freshman year of college. Like this is the amount of time that spanned until this book was written. And it's remarkable to me, just that thought alone. The, the challenge with Romans right out the gate is what is the purpose of the book? And this is where the Protestant heritage can work against us if we're not careful, because we can certainly see how God used Romans to correct some of the medieval views where if you know your your church history what you discover is that the catholic church and in, you know in the time leading up to luther the popes it had really become a position of power and they were trying to fund certain projects and you know there was catholic theology which catholic theology has often been misinterpreted by protestants so be very careful if you're going to talk about this that you've really taken the time to study you know, Catholic theology has always understood salvation to be purely an act of God's grace towards us. However, what had happened during this time was there is this view that you had to stay in grace, and that meant staying within the church and ultimately meant um, the sacrament of communion, that you were um, in good standing with the church, receiving this the sacrament as a continual means of grace. And there was this, this belief that the sins you commit in this life, there is still some type of retribution for them in purgatory. So what had started to happen was in order to stay in good standing with the church and to escape purgatory, people were being encouraged to give offerings and all types of other abuses that crept up within this system. And, you know, so there, there is some, some elements of this of, you know, what is grace? It is, you know, certainly God's initiation with us purely as a gift, but there is also probably some truth of us remaining in grace. I mean, we've talked about that in past episodes on soteriology. But it was in the context of all this, regardless of the nuance of that, that the Catholic Church had gotten very corrupt. And so Martin Luther, as he's reading Romans, really discovers that salvation is not an act of law. It's not our religious standing, but what Jesus did is what no person can do. And so we could spend our whole lives trying to be holy and still not be holy enough. And just as the Pharisees were very zealous to remain in good religious standing, so could a Christian be very zealous to try to remain in good religious standing. And ultimately, it's nothing if it's not for the grace of God and that we're justified freely by God's grace. So Martin Luther comes across this, and you certainly see that as a theme within Romans, and that becomes really the whole linchpin of the Protestant Reformation. Now, here's the challenge. That's what we tend to associate Romans with. And any Christian who has some kind of theological training, the word justification and Romans almost always go together. 
And that certainly is a theme of Romans, but I would argue that was not why the book of Romans was written. Romans is not a systematic theology. Paul does not talk about the Lord's coming. There's very little on ecclesiology in the book of Romans. And so there's actually quite a few major themes of theology that aren't mentioned. And what that tells us, it's not that Paul was neglecting those things. They just weren't the main thing that he was addressing. And so if you read Romans carefully, Paul's actually pretty clear what his main point is. He is wanting to establish a relationship with the Roman church, which is a church that he did not start. And that, that alone makes Romans unique amongst Paul's letters because most of his letters are written to churches that he himself started. What Paul's doing is he's reaching out to this church that he did not start, and he's asking them, will you support me in my ongoing mission where I want to take the gospel to Spain, so the far end of the Roman Empire? And Paul's trying to build this relationship. It's what's called an anchor church. It's like this epicenter of mission where he's basically saying to them, will you do for me what the church of Antioch did for me? Send me out with provisions, resources, and support so that I can take the gospel further. What he's trying to do here is tell them, this is my theology. Like, this is what you're getting. If you're going to support me, you know, it had been pretty controversial that, you know, just exactly how Gentiles fit within a Jewish church. So Paul's telling them, this is how I see it. This is why I believe that Jew and Gentile can form the church of God together. And he's asking them for support. So for those of you who've raised support before, this is like the most extensive support letter that you've ever seen. Yeah, top this one, guys. I have big, big expectations for your next newsletter. Now here, and that that actually brings up a good point because several scholars have brought this up saying if all Paul was trying to do was get support, he could have written a much smaller letter. I mean, this would be intimidating for us to write how much more so back in a day where writing was extremely expensive. I saw something, you know, the cost of writing Romans would have been comparable to the cost of a new car. And that alone tells you maybe Paul had something else in mind. And so if uh, you read Acts carefully, there's this little, little tiny mention where Aquila and Priscilla, who are main characters that you first meet in Corinth, had gotten kicked out of Rome. And there had been tension in Rome around the year AD 49, where a bunch of, of Jews had gotten expelled by the emperor. And it had to do, um, many people believe it had to do actually with the dispute amongst the teachings of Jesus, where there, you know, just like you see in other places, There was some Jewish people who had decided to follow Jesus and others who rejected that, and it led to some kind of tension and ultimately caused people to be expelled from the city. And so what you had is you had a bunch of Jews who left. The church got left in charge with Gentiles. And now as Jews are moving back into Rome, uh, many people believe there was a significant amount of tension of what does a Jewish Gentile church look like? These two groups that formerly had very little relationship together, how do they now fit together? You'll notice this in Romans the thesis statement of Romans can be found in Romans 1.16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but I'm convinced it's the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And if you then go ahead to the end of Romans in Romans 15, you see those same themes developed, but this time a little bit deeper. And Paul explicitly talks about his desire that Jew and Gentile would worship together with one united voice. And if you read Romans through this lens, you actually see Paul's chief concern is not justification. His chief concern is to demonstrate how the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and then the sending of the Holy Spirit enables Jew and Gentile to come together as one unified people so they might worship God together in unity. That's the point of Romans. Justification is part of that, but justification in and of itself is not the main point. 
And that becomes really critical because if, if you understand that, when you get to passages like Romans 9, 10, and 11, where there's all this language about election and predestination, it feels like this weird tangent that Paul goes on. You actually discover, no, that's a major part of the structure of this book because Paul has to answer really thorny questions. Like if God is adding Gentiles in, and at times if Jews are rejecting the gospel, so the very people who were under covenant with God, with Abraham, who'd followed God for so many years are now being rejected by God. How do you make sense of that theologically? And what does that mean for a unified Jew and Gentile church? Like suddenly that becomes a really significant part of the book that we can easily miss because we don't understand why the book was written. You know, depending upon your church background, Romans 8 and Romans 9 can feel like a big chasm. Like you have this narrative from Romans 1 to Romans 8, and then like you just said, Drew, it seems like this departure in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And of course, that's been right in the middle of debate about the sovereignty of God and predestination, free will, Calvinism, Arminianism. And I love the way you just framed that, Drew, that that's not necessarily the central thrust of what Paul's trying to communicate. He's not laying out a systematic theology about the the sovereignty of God or about predestination, but it's in a broader context. You have to understand that broader context to understand how Romans 9, 10, and 11 fit within that narrative and does so beautifully when you understand the purpose of Paul's writing. And if you miss that, you could perhaps get hung up on a theological debate that's not intended to be there. So this, this is really helpful for understanding the book of Romans. And if you read Romans predominantly as a book that talks about individual salvation, you miss that Paul is really talking about something much broader, and that is how the gospel is powerful enough to unite people no matter their background. It does have deep ramifications for our understanding of individual salvation. And I absolutely believe that God used the book of Romans during the Protestant Reformation to correct teaching that had gone astray and to put emphasis again on the justifying work of the cross. And so this in no way minimizes those things, but it does also say that if we only read the book through those lens, we've actually missed the point of the book. Now, if I can read it this way with a bit more of a communal, non-individualistic understanding of the book and also with a deeper appreciation for what Paul is saying, that then helps me to interpret what goes on in the rest of the book. So let me pause here and take it back to last week. So we talked a lot about genre, and then we talked about understanding the main point. And I'm hoping what you're seeing by us do, using the example of Romans is why these things become such a big deal. You know, and that then allows us to approach the Bible, like you said last time, Mick, with exegesis. What was this intended to say to the original recipients? And then if we can really wrestle with that, then we can move into hermeneutics of how do we interpret it through our life today. So if Paul's talking about the power of a unified church based on the gospel of Jesus, I mean, think of how, that rele- how relevant that is for the church in our era. It's a huge deal that as we understand our salvation as placing us in a new family and we start to cross social and racial and ethnic barriers to become the people of God that are altogether different. I mean, I, that is an incredibly relevant message for our day But if all we're doing is thinking of Romans as an individualistic book, we actually miss this very rich resource for the body of Christ to address modern issues. So let's dive into the structure of the letter to the Romans. Now, there is a way of reading it where we view it entirely individualized. And so with this approach, we would start off and it's the typical Romans road. You know, you have the problem of sin. You have the solution that we are justified through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus and through faith in the name of Jesus. 
we are brought back into right standing before God, and then we enter into a process of sanctification. Um, that's Romans 6 through 8. And then if you kind of stick on this individual thing, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are pretty difficult to interpret. And if you're familiar with the book, that's this whole part where, where Paul is talking about God predestining, you know, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and kind of this whole, you get into some of the, the questions of God's sovereignty versus free will. And uh, that's where a lot of uh, people go to when they're, when they're talking about that, are these passages in Romans. And then you get to chapter 12, which drives us over to the ethical teaching of what does it mean to walk out the Christian life. And that would be the individual view where I'm looking at the book of Romans purely from the lens of how does this affect me as an individual. And there's a lot of truth in that, and I think there can be some great clarity about the gospel message looking at it through, through that lens. However, I would argue that that's actually not how the book was written. I think instead, the book of Romans was written with more of a communal view of identity in the sense of Jew and Gentile together forming one church that is going to worship God with a united voice like we see there at the end of chapter 15. So that's the communal view of the book of Romans. And if you look at it that way, it actually changes the structure because then what you see is you see the first few chapters. Chapter 1 is going to talk about how Gentiles are under the wrath of God due to their idolatry, due to their rebellion. But then when you get to chapter 2, we're also going to see that Jews are under the wrath of God, that even though they had the law, they still lived in rebellion. And in fact, because of that, there's even a greater accountability because the Gentiles don't actually know God. But how much more those who are the recipients of the law, how much more does God expect them to live righteously, but still they don't? And what that does is that's a great equalizer in chapter 3, where we see that everyone's guilty and that all of us need some, some type of atoning sacrifice so that we can be brought back into right standing with God. And that language of justification, an interesting note you know, in, in the original Greek language, justification is the same word as righteousness. Those two go together. So in English, we use two different words, whereas in Greek, you have righteousness and then you have making something right, and that's the language of justification. So if you're tracking with Paul's argument, it's whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, all of us are guilty of sin and in need of being made right before God. And it's the sacrificial death, atoning sacrifice of Jesus that makes us right, that restores us back into right standing before God. Well, then you get to chapter 4, and you see that that right standing is accessed by faith. And what Paul is demonstrating here is that it was not adherence to the Jewish law that ultimately made someone right before God. Instead, it was the God's graciousness and the human response of faith. And what Paul's doing is he's using Abraham as the example because Abraham is the ultimate prototype of what it means to, to live in covenant with God. You'll notice that Abraham doesn't do anything to earn God's favor. And in fact, if you wanted to go do a study on Genesis 12, that's one of the things that stands out is Abraham was not a particularly good guy. You know, it's not that he was this, this paragon of righteousness. In fact, he, he wasn't. Yet it was God's gracious initiation. Instead, what was credited to Abraham was his faith. So the point that Paul is making is that, that just as Abraham was made right before God because of God's graciousness, and that righteousness was accessed by faith, just as that was the legacy of Abraham, that's also now accessible to Gentiles because how much more so 
when it's God's initiation with all of humanity through the blood of Jesus. That's, that's kind of the point here, that all of us can be made right in the same way that Abraham was made right, and that was through faith. And if you're, if you're going to take this from an Old Testament perspective, it was God's grace, his gracious initiation with Abraham, Abraham's response of faith, then the law was given later. And the law was really designed to help Israel stay in this place of, of grace where they were responding to God and living set apart from the surrounding world. That's not how they earned God's favor, but that was their response to God's favor. And so that's not fully made explicit, but that's, that's what Paul's tapping into here with this argument. And that gets us then, chapter 5 is really a summary of this whole argument up to this point. So then that takes us to the next key movement, and that begins in chapter 6. So what we're seeing on a communal level is how whether you're Jew or Gentile, whatever group you come from, all of us access the righteousness of God by faith. That brings up a big question. If we are made righteous purely by the grace of God and our response of faith, do we have any obligation to live righteous? You know, when we think about righteousness, it is right standing before God, and there is an element of that of what it means to be part of Israel or part of God's chosen people. But there's this whole other part of living righteously. simple way of saying this is God has made us righteous so that we can then live righteous. And that's one of the functions of the law. So if all that happened through the cross was that Gentiles were justified, but there was nothing that was given to Gentiles that they could live righteously, then that still has really big ramifications for there to truly be a united church that's able to cross ethnic barriers, that's able to be Jew and Gentile together. And so this is, this is where Romans turns, starting in chapter 6. There's a literary device here called diatribe, where an author or in rhetoric, whether it's verbal or written, you would introduce somebody that's challenging your point of view. And that's what Paul does. There's a series of questions in chapter 6 and chapter 7, the primary one being, more or less, well, if this is true, if we've been made righteous, do we have any ongoing obligation to live righteous? You see Paul's famous response in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, you know, by no means, kind of this very emphatic, that's not what I'm saying. And then he goes in to describe the reality of baptism is that you actually died to your old way of living and you've been empowered to walk in a new life. And in many churches, that's actually part of our baptism formula or baptism ritual are that those sayings. Now, I think what's really interesting here at this point, and just bear in mind, Paul never describes how to walk in that new life in chapter 6. So if you actually want to get out your Bible, go ahead and read it, chapter 6, 4. And if you notice, he, he kind of describes you're dead to your sin, now you're empowered to walk in new life. But in chapter 6, Paul does not answer how you're empowered to walk in a newness of life. He's just telling you you're not supposed to live in sin anymore because you're dead to your past, and now you're supposed to live differently. And if that's where you stop, then it's like, well, great, but how? How, how do we live different? If Israel couldn't figure it out with the law, how on earth are we Gentiles who don't even have the law, how are we supposed to live righteously? I think that's intentional, kind of leaving us hanging a little bit. You get into chapter 7, where it's this very intense description of life under the law, and more or less that the burden Paul's having to answer in chapter 7 is, if the law is good, why is it not capable of making us righteous? Uh, another way of looking at that is, you know, kind of using his imaginary opponent to say, 
Did God do something bad to us? Is the law itself sin? Did God give us the law as a punishment? You know, kind of that whole question, because if so, if the law is bad and if God gave the law, then that means there's some flaw in God and his ability to lead his people. And again, Paul's having to say, no, that's not the point. And his argument um, is very nuanced, but it's very important, is the problem is sin, which is the corruption of human nature and sin ultimately leads to death. And so these are the two enemies that face humanity, sin and death. The issue with the law is that the law can reveal sin, and even to some extent the law can restrain sin, but the law cannot free us from sin. And that's the point of what Paul is saying, you know, kind of this inner tension of the law is helpful in the sense that it points out my sin, and maybe in some way it restrains some of the worst excesses of my sin, but ultimately what the law really does is it just tells me that I'm trapped. It shows me my desperate condition, that I'm not capable of living righteous because my fundamental human nature is flawed. So the law is not sin, but nor is the law powerful enough to overcome sin. And I believe that the strands of the book of Romans all come together in Romans chapter 8. And if you remember where Paul earlier talks about walking in new life, he taps right back into that same language in chapter 8, and what is being unfolded in this chapter is it's the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer that empowers the believer to live righteously. And I would argue that this theme is just as prominent in the book of Romans as is the theme of justification. In fact, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times in chapter 8 alone. And if you were to picture kind of the overall structure, the overall argument of Romans, this is the climax. This is the the apex moment of this book is this grand unveiling of the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And I think if you had to summarize what Paul is saying in this book, maybe in one sentence, it's that you have been justified by the atoning death of Jesus Christ and you have been buried with him in death and now you've been empowered to walk in his resurrection life by the indwelling, empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the critical part here, is that the Spirit inside the believer gives the believer power to walk in freedom from sin and ultimately live a righteous life. And there's this contrast that you see between the power of the Spirit and the inability of the law. Again, going in the Greek, it's actually the same word, And so when Paul is saying, I believe the gospel is the power of God for salvation in the thesis statement way back in chapter 1, verse 16, in Greek, there is this this contrast in chapter 8 where the law was not able. Literally, the law did not have power to. It's that same Greek word. And what the law did not have power to, the spirit did have power to. And so the spirit is being revealed as a much greater power to live righteous than anything that was previously available under the law. So essentially what Paul's saying here is Jew and Gentile can be united because though the law was good and the law was needed, ultimately the law was not sufficient. And now we have something so much greater that therefore renders the law obsolete because we have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to live righteously. And that is what allows for a church that's Jew and Gentile to come together. Some Bible scholars refer to the chapter the eighth chapter of Roman is kind of the pinnacle of theology. It's the, you know, one of the highest summits of theology in all of scripture. Um, an incredible, rich, beautiful book where so much comes together of what does it actually mean to walk this newness of life. And in chapter eight, we're introduced to this idea of eschatological tension. 
And you see that talking about how all of creation is waiting for this sons of God to be revealed. And there's this groaning in creation, this groaning in our own heart. And this is really important because what what we're seeing here is that we do live in the reality that we are justified. We live in the reality that we're secure in the love of God, which is further in chapter 8. We live in the reality of our adoption. We live in the reality of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. These are all now, but they're also not yet. And notice how it says that, you know, we are now sons of God by the Spirit. And yet, just a few verses later, that all of creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And so it is now that we are made sons of God. It's also not yet that the sons of God are fully revealed. And you actually see that contrast several times in chapter 8. That This point that this is all true, this is all right, this is all real, and we're waiting for its full consummation. And so there's this groaning in this life. So we do have access to the power of the Spirit now, and it's not yet what it one day will be, and we can look forward to that. But nevertheless, we can live in the reality of the Spirit's empowerment today. So if you understand this, then that makes total sense of what comes after chapter 8. 9, 10, and 11 are not just this weird detour in Paul's argument, but they're actually pretty important because now it gets into the idea of if all of this is true, what about God's purposes for Israel? Did they fail? And I would submit that a lot of the election language and predestination language in Romans is communal more than it is individual. I think that's us reading our individualism into scripture. And what Paul's trying to point out through a variety of different ways is that God's purpose to Israel did not fail. God chose Israel, but not everybody who calls themselves Israel, not everybody who is ethnic Israel, ultimately are those that have been chosen. And this idea that just as there was a covenant given to Abraham, you had in Isaac, you have Esau that went one way and Jacob that went another way. And, you know, the covenant, there, there still was a grace on both of them. And you see that in scripture, but not everybody who's in the ethnic lineage will ultimately inherit the fullness of the covenant. And so the, the point Paul is making is that that was not a mistake on God's part, nor did God's promise fail, but it's just the reality that, that some people ultimately will not enter into the covenant. And I think the implied message there, whether you're Jew or Gentile, is be careful that that doesn't become you. Be careful that, that you remain in the grace of God. And so with that all as a setup, then you get into the ethical teaching at the end of the book. And there's the first part of it that's just a very general description of what it means to live as a Christian. And you'll notice the stress that we need to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Our old identities have to be placed upon the altar. Um, we have to embrace a lifestyle of genuine brotherly love you know, kind of various understandings of what does it mean to form one united body. And then the very relevant concerns in Romans 14 and the first part of Romans 15 of what do you do when you have somebody who's Jewish background, who there are some cultural traditions or even some religious traditions that conflict with Gentile Christians, where they're all united around the person of Jesus and some basic ethical teaching and a call to discipleship and surrender, but on certain issues, they don't see eye to eye. And it's this, this idea that what it means to be a united church is that we are willing to sacrifice our own interests for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And if that means that, you know, there's certain food that makes them uncomfortable, we'll stop eating it. If there's certain things that we do that make them uncomfortable, we'll stop doing it because Christian unity is more important than the exercise of our individual rights or our communal rights. So here you see the book of Romans and, and hopefully you're drawing out application points for this podcast. As we look at it, I, I you know, as I've read it, I, I think the really having a deeper understanding of what it means that we've been justified, that I have been made right so that I can rightly live, that I have been justified, brought back into right standing before God, 
and that is a critical component of my salvation. And I've also been empowered by the Holy Spirit that I might live in right standing, living for the kingdom to come, living for that future when all is revealed and all is made right, and in tapping into that today, even in the midst of the brokenness and the complexity of this world. And a critical part of the fact that I've been saved, that I've been brought into right standing before God, is now I'm a part of this unified church of God around the world. And that means that I'm going to have to die to myself in new ways. That means I'm going to have to go out of my way to show honor and sacrifice my own self-interest for the sake of my brothers and sisters, because ultimately my allegiance to the kingdom, to the church, to the people of God must be greater than my previous allegiances and identities that have been placed upon me by society. So I don't stop becoming an American. I don't stop becoming, you know, some of the various things that might go into my cultural identity, but I have to see that my new identity in Christ is more important than all of that, that I've died to my old and I've been raised into a new life and that new life is marked by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'll wrap up, wrap up my Romans overview just with these thoughts of what would it live for us, what would it look like for us if we really dwell on this story, if we really embrace this message, if when we start talking about church issues, social issues, ethical issues, if we gridded it through the teaching of Romans and an understanding that we're called to live in the power of the Spirit, to live a life of righteousness, it starts to change the way that we address some of the topics facing us. And I think it's an important part of our Christian heritage that we need to reclaim right now in this season. That's great, Drew. Thanks for taking us in depth into the book of Romans. Hopefully you've found this to be not just edifying, but again, empowering. And we will take another angle, look at a different genre of a book at Job next week, and we will catch you then on Ideology. Ideology.